This is the Urban Political, the podcast on urban theory, research, and activism. Welcome to the Urban Political. This episode features an in-depth interview with Samson Wong about the protests in Hong Kong. This is Samson Samson Wong. I'm an urbanist and I teach at、uh, Academy of Performing Arts in Hong Kong, and I'm active in the Hong Kong movement right now. Uh, as a researcher and also as an activist,、um, in the past few years or in the past decade or so, I've been combining research and academic practices with my artistic practices uh, uh, in Hong Kong. The interview,、uh, Mark, has covered lots of uh, uh, fascinating topics. How would we describe the the, the main sort of points that? We we can take away from from this you know, in terms of podcast. For me, I would start with he covers the radicalization, this process, different、uh, types of people become radicalized, and this is a generational aspect there,、uh, which seems quite strong. He talks about the urban dimensions,、um, but he talks about a lot more than that, doesn't he? So what amazes me about this movement is that it is ongoing. For a hundred thirty-four days now, and、um, protest actions happen almost on a daily basis, drawing、um, groups of protesters from from a handful to two million people onto the streets of Hong Kong. I was、uh, very enthused to hear about from this experimental approach. Yes, I mean he brought up lots of、uh, different aspects of uh, uh, tactics and strategies, and uh, 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 one thing that was very clear was this separation of the political and the economic in terms of demands and rights, and uh, uh, some of the consequences of that separation in a place where there's massive inequality. You know, Hong Kong is a, a very uh, uh, unequal place,、um, and. Beyond that, the the, the importance of、uh, or the growing acceptance of the necessity of conflict with the police, coupled with this uh, uh, be water、uh, strategy of moving around the city and disrupting the urban every day, the ways in which I have perceived the movement、uh, through social media. Has、uh, commonly emphasized its innovativeness in terms of use of、uh, technologies.、Um, in that respect, I was rather surprised to hear from from Samson the 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 ongoing、um, importance of、uh, building trust through face to face interactions. Yes, alongside. Uh, uh, uh Observations on what's happening、uh, inside Hong Kong. We we also reflect on on the relation or not between uh, uh, the protests there and the protests in other parts of the world.、Uh, it's a great, fascinating conversation. We hope you enjoy it. So, could you please、uh, tell us about the history of this、uh, of the protest and the links to the Umbrella Movement? And what is the current situation? We don't really have a name for what's going on right now. Usually, people call it the Hong Kong protests, or the、um, some people call it、uh, the Water Revolution, and so on. We have all sort of names for that.、Uh, 
So in short, um, it comes uh, with a great surprise because uh, after the umbrella movement ended in 2014, at the end of 2014, um, people generally, generally describe that uh, in the subsequent uh, four and a half year to be a rather pessimistic uh, atmosphere in Hong Kong that uh, political organizations seem um, impossible and weak, but uh, a lot of um, uh, actions were made by Beijing to suppress the freedom in Hong Kong and our political rights seems to be deteriorating. So by um, June this year, June 2019, when people were mobilizing against the extradition bill, uh, amendment to an extradition bill that allows uh, extradition of um, criminals to China, it comes with a really big surprise that uh, on the first day of um, uh, a city, uh, a general march of, of, of the public in uh, on, on 9th of June, a million people were on the street. So uh, at that time, people thought that the government would immediately make concession and withdraw the bill. But uh, but then afterwards, uh, it's only three months after the movement began, uh, the government has uh, withdrawn the bill. So uh, through those months, um, the movement gradually developed into um, a political movement that is not confined to um, to uh, protest against the bill. It is uh, now called uh, a, a revolution of our times. This is a slogan that is so popular on the street right now that people would would would, would chant it all the time. Uh, uh, the whole slogan reads uh, "Liberate Hong Kong." and revolution of our times. This is actually a rather abstract and um, a slogan without substance. Everyone interprets, have his own, his or her own interpretation about what exactly it means for liberate Hong Kong. But in general, um, the citizens' demand, uh, demands have been consolidated into five uh, concrete uh, uh, demands uh, through the first three months of the protest. So uh, some of them are about uh, the bills and some of them are about police brutality and uh, some of them are about investigation into the police practices and also about uh, decriminalization of people who were arrested. So, um, but uh, in, in, in the recent months, uh, in, in, the, in the past month, I would say, uh, more, uh, one more demand was uh, focusing on Police in particular, more and more people are demanding that uh, the police uh, needs to be completely reorganized and uh, pun uh, and investigated. So now some people are saying that there are six demands. Um, so to conclude, we have the the movement has already been uh, ongoing for one hundred and forty three days by the time we are talking right now. And um, it seems that it's going to be sustained. Uh, and uh, on top of those concrete demands, there are a general uh, sentiments that uh, the government has completely 
uh, laws is a legitimacy. For example, from a survey result we see yesterday uh, being announced that um, the chief executive of Hong Kong, Carrie Lam, um, there are uh, only uh, uh, about 20% of uh, people uh, in the survey responded that they are supporting the chief, chief executive. And more than 70% of uh, the local population now are against her. So um, it's a complete uh, uh, confidence crisis uh, in the government right now in Hong Kong. So on top of those concrete demands, uh, there are more general uh, or more long-term goals for having real democracy and uh, uh, ways to uh, safeguard the autonomy of Hong Kong in the long run. Uh, so this is, I, I think this is a, uh, a kind of uh, summary of what's going on so far. I understand that uh, universal suffrage is also one of the key demands yeah. of the protests. Uh, could you elaborate a bit on what is uh, at stake here? Sure. Uh, so in 2014, during the umbrella movement, there was only one very sharp uh, political demand, which is a uh, request for uh, universal suffrage. And that was, uh, in, this, in, the, in the current movement, uh, it was brought up in July um, more clearly that people want to include this uh, demand into the five demands and into a central theme of the current movement. Um, but interestingly, uh, People often talk a lot about uh, uh, the protests uh, giving pressure to the Hong Kong government. But in fact, well, we all know that in 2014, Beijing has uh, limited the scope of a political reform in Hong Kong in the so-called uh, decision on 31st of August. Uh, it was made on that year. Uh, in that year, 2014, 31st of August, that uh, outlined the only possible scope for future development in Hong Kong is that uh, the leader of Hong Kong can only be uh, chosen in a way uh, controlled by Beijing. So uh, with that framework or with that decision, uh, even though we have a very clear demand for universal suffrage and democracy, um, now it seems like uh, lost cause because uh, people are still not ready to, um, in, especially in the in in the discourse, uh, people are not very not completely ready to talk about Beijing. It's like elephant in the room that uh, people don't really talk about that the movement is directly uh, demanding Beijing to give political concession and uh, loosen loosening its control on Hong Kong. So uh, that's the situation right now. I think. Thinking beyond uh, um, these political objectives, uh, more about perhaps why people, uh, what might be driving people onto the streets, uh, how important do you think uh, um, the housing situation is in Hong Kong? You know, with the incredibly high prices, you know, this international global market for housing, you know, some debate around the world. How important is it in the, in the Hong Kong protests? Yeah, I keep reading things about Chile in the last few days 
and all the articles concerning neoliberalism and as a global condition and so on. And I keep thinking how I can relate this to Hong Kong and whether it's possible to relate. Um, but I think there is a very interesting uh, strategy here that uh, a lot of the young people and also uh, general Hong Kong citizens want to distance the, the political movement from um, economic concerns because uh, they consciously tell the government that uh, you can't uh, can, uh, stop this movement by meeting some of the economic concerns and some of the concerns about high uh, land price and the impossibility of uh, uh, having decent housing. I, I think um, the government is also making this dichotomy between an economic movement and a political movement. So, um, so the local, the, the decisions and the, uh, and, the, and the protester, uh, in terms of strategy, uh, discursively uh, distance every demand about housing and about economic situation from the current movement. I think this is a very interesting development here. Um, however, um, a lot of young people also express that uh, they don't see a future. This is a more abstract line of uh, understanding about the situation of Hong Kong. They don't actually talk directly about jobs, career, econo uh, economy, or housing. But they think that um, the political situation in Hong Kong uh, do not make them do not allow them to have any hope of um, um, developing themselves in in the city as a, a whole. This is a more holistic or sense of hopelessness that uh, does not directly refer to any material um, conditions. I think um, that also uh, connecting this, uh, people are always very interested in. Uh, that the protesters in Hong Kong are always saying that uh, if we burn, you burn with us. And they wonder whether uh, that means uh, something related to the economy. I think the role of the economy in this movement is not so much about making demands that the government should improve the economy or, or, or should improve the chances for people to uh, buy a property and so on. It's more about using the economy as uh, as um, a bargaining power that uh, with, uh, since it's so hopeless, people do not worry about the economy at all. So that's, that's the discourse being developed right now. So uh, I think it's a little bit uh, complicated, but um, in fact, people are um, talking about housing all the time in the past month after the chief executive of Hong Kong released the latest uh, policy address, uh, the policy plan for the coming year. Um, but they see that as a way to di uh, distract people from the political demands of the movement. Before we get back to this, maybe you can mm, give us a picture of um who is the social base of, of this movement? And so in terms of its demographics, age, uh, gender, socioeconomic status, and so forth. 
I think this is a very difficult question. But uh, before I answer to that, uh, a group of uh, uh, social scientists, uh, especially political scientists, uh, Francis Lee, Samson Yoon, Edmund Chen, and Gary Tan, the four of them form a group uh, doing a lot of uh, public opinion surveys since the movement began. So I, in in the following parts of the, the um, interview, I'll, I'll keep on referring to their figures. Um, but as I look at the surveys, they don't really have a social demographics of the protesters as a whole. Bec they only have the uh, numbers and figures for a particular march or a particular gathering. So um, I would instead answer to this question uh, from the point of view of my own observation on the ground and uh, some other sources. Um, I think, first of all, it is very important to define who are the protesters because um, there are a lot of people discussing online and uh, in in the actions, uh, a lot of people are not really involving in the in the street battles and so on. So, but if we just look at um, the uh, demographics of people who are dressed in black block and ready to be arrested and on the street all the time, they are really, uh, really, really young. Uh, as we observe, uh, they are mostly students um, and very few um, uh, people who are in their middle age. So uh, the gender is rather balanced and um, it's very difficult to comment on their class, but uh, I think it is possible to generalize that uh, it's mainly young people who are on the street. And that has to do with um, the opportunity cost they, they perceive that uh, uh, they are more psychologically ready for being arrested. And I think that's essential to the whole movement. Now, um, people who perceive that they are prepared to be arrested are mostly people who are not uh, participating in the umbrella movement. They, were, they are so young that um, they don't even have experience of the Occupy. So I think this is uh, one point uh, we can read uh, directly on the ground and also from the survey results. Considering the strong uh, influence that that this young generation has in the movement. I'm 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 speaking here now from from a European perspective, huh, in which in which housing is f for this generation and including my generation uh, a terrible concern. I mean, you I'm 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 concerned about um, being able to stay in Berlin and not having to move yeah. out uh, to some some remoter place outside of Berlin. Um, so, so I imagine given the extreme or the, the, the highest real estate values in, in Hong Kong, people probably must be also concerned about uh, even be economically able to afford staying in Hong Kong. So even if Hong Kong retains its independence or retains this, this idea of the, one country, two system, um, aren't people afraid of having to move out of Hong Kong and uh, needing to go someplace else, even China maybe? Mm -hmm. uh, there are a lot of talks about uh, housing Hong Kong people in the 
so-called Greater Bay Area, um, the Pearl River Delta in the past two years. And people are very pessimistic about that. And however, I think very curiously, since they are so young, a lot of them um, think that the whole thing, the whole thinking about future and about housing and about career is so far away from them. Uh, to be honest, I'm even I'm a lecturer in a in a university right now. I'm still living with my parents, and I I I can imagine. Also, I talked to some of them that this uh whole thing about um uh the property price do not even come close to something on their agenda because it's becoming so impossible right now. I think that is also why they focus on something seem like so idealistic in in the media and the press eyes and in the researchers' eyes that they think that they might as well focusing on some very um some political values or focusing on uh the battle with authoritarianism, something more abstract because um the whole practical concerns about uh their future um their future in terms of material uh uh conditions is so remote i i think that doesn't perhaps that isn't a very convincing argument but um this is what i perceive from them that um now is they 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 kind of connect the political um situation with the economic situation they have uh, an understanding about what is uh, so the so-called um uh, chronic capitalism about how um if hong kong is liberated in any sense that the economic problem will also be solved so i think there's a very um particular situation in hong kong right now and it's more often for people who are at the middle age or who who have already graduated from university for uh, about a decade that are more concerned about housing. So these young people are so, they are still really kids and in secondary school. So um, I think that's one reason why they are not really consciously thinking about those uh, economic problems. Okay, that's clear. So let's move back to the movement itself. So uh, the movement is always described as leaderless. So is that the case? I generally like to um, frame the movement as a series of uh, actions. So uh, each each action or each performative action uh, has an uh, organizing team behind. So uh, when the media or in the general discourse, people are saying that it's a leaderless movement, it, it simply means there is no uh, a leader planning all of the action or planning a number of actions. Usually each action is planned by different groups of people. Uh, but one of the major organizations uh, is the Civil Human Rights Front in Hong Kong that they organized all of the uh, biggest marches, uh, including the one with um, 
one million people and two million people on the streets. And um, the leader of uh, that civil human rights front was attacked uh, a few weeks ago uh, by some unknown um, uh, group of uh, people. And I think we can fairly say that civil human rights front uh, uh, a very loosely organized um, civil society group is one of the leaders that keep on organizing different kinds of actions. And for other kinds of actions, they are actually small groups uh, uh, applying for approval from the police and also planning and uh, mobilizing. So I think uh, in rather than saying that it is absolutely leaderless, I would say that is uh, is having a, a different groups of leader uh, in different actions, different kinds of actions. So, um, and also since a lot of them were um, anonymous, so uh, it doesn't feel like the usual movement, like the Occupy movement where uh, all the leaders are named and we can, we can we see who is organizing the Occupy as a whole. Now, since uh, every week there are two to five um, events and actions. I like to see that uh, each event is actually having one uh, one group of leaders. And for example, uh, when there was a group of uh, designers and uh, a group of uh, activists who were uh, sending um, uh, ads to the newspaper all over the world, it's actually a group called the G20 group because the G20 summit was happening in uh, in July, uh, sorry, in, in June. So um, at that time, uh, they called this group a G20 action group. But later on, this group of people evolved into uh, a group that organized different kinds of action, uh, including uh, political assembly and also uh, marches. So I think it's more... Uh, appropriate to say that uh, there are a lot of ad hoc action groups that are working uh, behind and they usually communicate through um, um, telegram but um, I think it is often uh, the, the role of these social media and and for example telegram and whatsapp is overstated and because for these groups to organize uh, effective actions, they often have to meet face to face. So I think um, in terms of organization, actually a lot of these groups still involve people who actually know each other and uh, have been doing things together for, for a long time before this movement began. So um, I think this uh, kind of describes how the movement uh, is working right now, that uh, each week people are planning different events uh, with dif different groups. This movement is often um, likened uh, to the uh, principle be water that is ascribed mm. to Bruce Lee. Um, and you also use that, that term um, to talk about the movement. So could you elaborate a bit on, on this particular tactic? Mm -hmm. I don't know actually how people understand that uh, in other parts of the world uh, I I think interestingly uh, people don't really agree on what exactly be water means but um, I think in general 
it has something to do with the 2014 Occupy. Uh, so in the very first sense, uh, be water means do not stay at a particular place for a long time. I think that's uh, completely, that is completely about uh, people perceiving the 2014 Occupy as a kind of failure. So they think that for this time, people to be more successful, they have to organize actions that are more guerrilla-like and much less about staying in one place and much more about uh, come and go and also being very agile. That's a general sense about uh, what be water means. But I think if I, so. So just to to clarify this, so so when you refer to Occupy 2014, then you basically refer to the experience of the Umbrella Movement, in which there were uh, significant Occupy actions happening of particular uh, places in the city, right? And and so this yes. kind of yeah. o occupation of sites, of streets, of squares um, uh, is no longer the predominant uh, tactic in this mm. movement. Am I understanding you? Completely correct. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's completely correct. And, and yeah, I think um, it has also to do with... Uh, how they are reacting to the police because the police has transformed a lot in Hong Kong uh, in the past few years. And in Occupy, uh, one of the, one of the um, core belief is that uh, it is um, civil disobedience and it is a nonviolent action that people should be ready to sit down and get ready for the police to come and arrest you. I think one of the the idea that uh, people do not no longer think that they should be arrested. And the highest principle is to be escaping from the police. Uh, we, is, is what drives the whole Be Water strategy. And also um, a second thing that I associate with the whole Be Water understanding is how it is executed spatially uh, in the city because um, now they are making use of uh, every corner of the city or different kinds of infrastructure and spaces. I think that is really like uh, how water flows in the in the city. Uh, that uh, because uh, <laughs> it's it's just coincident that um, some of the geographers and urbanists that I read a lot are working on urban political ecology, and uh, it happens that a lot of them writes about water and how water allow us to allows us to understand how complex the city is. Then I think the whole saying about be water is also about how people are creatively making use of different parts of the city as resources, as uh, spatial resources uh, for them to launch a protest. I think that is what exactly um, I refer to when I think that the movement can be nicely described as one that is about water and and a be water strategy could you give us an example of how uh, of such innovative use of such um, yeah, yeah. different infrastructures um, one very interesting action right now is that they uh, all, uh, the protesters uh, launch an action 
that people shout slogans of the movement at their home uh, from the window, shout uh, outside so that your neighbor can respond. And I think that's very interesting because uh, that is also that has also to do with um, minimizing the risk because you are at home. No one can come into your home and address you because you shout. And also it is about solidarity uh, to, to know that which of your neighbor is actually um, your uh, comrades in the, in the protest. And it has to do with the verticality of urban development in Hong Kong and the high density of the housing. I think people who initiated that was uh, extremely smart that they um, allow people to simply sit their ho- at their home and but it is it's kind of effective because uh, uh, some of the people who are um, uh, who are not uh, supporting the movement would um, would also be um, influenced through this action. Uh, I, it has already lasted for more than a month that people are still shouting at time uh, at 10 p.m. every night uh, at their home. So whenever you wherever you are in the city, if you are near some kind of residence, uh, 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 some kinds of housings, and then you will be able to listen to those slogans and feel that the movement is alive and ongoing. I think that that is uh, one of the uh, really creative uh, examples. And I think another example has to to do with the uh, um, shopping malls. That um, the shopping malls are always understood to be uh, places where the security guards would not allow you to do anything other than consuming. And now this um, in this movement, people consciously. Uh, overcome that uh, security and launch a lot of actions in the malls. And actually in Hong Kong, the shopping malls are always completely central to people's life. And um, for example, when I when I go home, I have to travel, I have to walk through two malls. And a lot of us have to walk through uh, at least one shopping malls before we are we are able to reach home. And so since July and uh, maybe even in June, people start doing a lot of action in the malls, mainly because they perceive that the police is not uh, allowed to enter the mall. But later on, when the police enter the malls, they they um, they also flexibly react to that by turning their actions uh, into different formats, like uh, they are singing in the malls, and also uh, they are always. Um, mobilization days in the malls that they um, actually the side effect or the the, uh, the the outcome of this action is also uh, influencing the economy as uh, and it also gives pressure to the government. So I think the use of shopping malls, the use of the use uh, the, the action that um, make use of the high density uh, living conditions in Hong Kong are two examples that uh, I like to talk about usually. That's fascinating. I, I was thinking a bit more broadly about the urban dimensions of the protest when you were talking there. And we touched on housing and spatial strategy. And 
I wondered if you could say a little bit more about uh, maybe two aspects of that. The extent to which these protests could be seen as being urban, you know, in the way that lots of claims were made about earlier rounds of protests, especially the Occupy protests, that they were kind of urban in some way, about space, about capitalist urbanization, these kind of things. It doesn't seem like that's the case necessarily uh, mm. this time around, uh, but it does seem to be perhaps the case in other places. So I wondered if you could address that aspect of it directly. And then I thought uh, the second sort of aspect of it is uh, when you were, it was your interpretation of it that got me onto it, this idea of the city uh, that you were talking about, the flows and be water and what kind of, uh, if you say a little bit more about the image of the city that comes out of these protests, you know, I was thinking of, you talked about urban political ecology, I was thinking about this idea of met urban metabolism and flows, and I wonder if you could just elaborate on that, because I thought it was really fascinating. Mm -hmm. um, I think in terms of the urban dimensions, uh, a lot of people are celebrating a lot of things about the Hong Kong movement. Uh, we see the graphics and also some of the more very heartwarming actions on the streets and so on. But I think the meat of the movement or the, the, the core actions of the movement are actually um, people uh, gathering on the streets and in urban space um, with their physical bodies. And this is very real when they confront the police and then when they gather. No matter, there are a variety of forms of actions, but in fact, behind all of that, it is all about placing the crowd um, in in urban space and public space and open space. I think uh, that's why some of the images, main images about the movement, are people on the street while the uh, daily order is still functioning, like a uh, on one, on this side of the street, people are setting up barricades, but on the other side, people are still drinking beer. I think that kind of images and that kind of scenes captured by the photojournalists are very nicely capturing the essence of the movement. Is that uh, it is really the whole be water thing is really all about uh, placing yourself in different parts of the city in order to disrupt the. Um, the, the normal order. And as I read the literature uh, about urban political movements uh, by uh, Eric Swinadel and also Lazo's uh, Cavaliotis, uh, they, they've been writing a few pieces in the past few years saying that uh, uh, this kind of political actions are all about manifesting uh, yourself or and your political demands by placing yourself in public space. I think this is the dimension that I mainly focus on and I'm most interested in is that um, people are using all sorts of strategy to stay on the street when the police are reacting with more and more uh, stringent um, um actions or, or with more and more brutality i think that kind of flexibility of reactions like making use of the shops making use of the uh uh subway and metro and and bus buses and also uh for example there's a whole system of people driving uh unknown uh, uh 
a stranger's home when when the uh, city stopped the subway. So people could not really escape the police and could not go home. And there's a whole uh, team of drivers using their own private vehicles to drive people home, drive the protester homes. I think this kind of strategy of staying on the street as long as possible and improvise with what is available on the street is, is very interesting. Um, for example, also another example is that um, uh, the Hong Kong people has already removed, uh, according to the government's figures, they have already removed more than 4.2 kilometers of uh, rail lanes and fences on the streets in order to build their barricades. And the government also is e even describing that we, they have already removed um, the length of the rail lanes they have removed is longer than a marathon. Uh, so I think that that is also very interesting that they are making use of all kinds of objects available on the streets. And so I think it is truly an urban movement in the sense that every week people are anticipating uh, another way of staying on the street uh, um, in another creative way of staying on the street. I, I think compared to other movements, uh, we can describe that some of the movements are very violent and also very uh, fearless that they confront with the police and they just stay on the street. But uh, I think the Hong Kong movement is a little bit more flexible that sometimes they just uh, improvise and not, not, uh, not to confront the police so directly they they are shifting their strategy all the time i think that is that is why it is truly urban in the sense that when they shift the strategy and they become more flexible in their movement they have to think about what kind of re resources are available uh, in the city as a whole i listened to one commentator saying that uh these hong kong protests uh that are currently happening are taking this use of digital technology compared to the Occupy movement in 2011 to a whole new level. So could you give us uh, a few insights on how yeah, this yeah. digital technology is being used? I might not completely agree with that because I think the technology or the, the digital platforms we are using are not actually very advanced. We have a forum that is um, serving as a purpose of um, discussing actions or mobilization, which is a very simple and it's like a forum in the in the 2000s and it's called the uh, lihkg.com forum and also uh, people form groups in Telegram, which is not something very new, which is uh, also being used in a lot of uh, protests around the world. But I think uh, what is most effective, what is most, uh, what is special about the, the mechanism of mobilization right now is that um, the connection between the digital sphere and, the, and, and physical actions are, are smooth and uh, they have uh, strong connections that uh, after people discuss action in, the, in, the, in Telegram and in the forum, they actually manage to translate that into uh, actions in 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 the city i think that is very important and uh on the other hand uh, 
if we talk about all the uh, graphics and all the uh, mobilizations uh, that they do online through uh, Twitter, Facebook, and WhatsApp, they are all, they are actually all uh, standard ways of doing things. I don't think there are a lot of innovation in this part. I think the key innovation is that it's more about people's um, ways of uh, organizing rather than in terms of the technology they use. There are always reports about uh, very fancy tactics of using uh, things like airdrop of the iPhone to send posters or uh, materials to others. But I think that's, those are not actually central to the movement. I think really what is really central to the movement is that uh, people bring up a lot of um, ideas about actions on the forums and on Telegram that um, a whole trial and error mechanism has developed that um, people are willing to try different kinds of things and make that happen uh, week by week. I think that connects the digital platforms with, with what happened on the ground. And um, it is, uh, as uh, the so sociologist Francis Lee described, it is kind of like an open source system um, the people have managed to develop uh, in the first few weeks of the movement that these actions are then sustainable in the long run. This time the movement uh, they have a uh, they have a situation that's the non-violent and a fighter group uh, have some kind of uh, some kind of the relationship uh, do not spill like Mugashi. Um, Mm, yeah. So, uh, could you please elaborate on these two groups? Uh, would you agree that do not split idea was put into the practice? That's, uh, there's a lot of debate about that. And I think first of all, we have to um, figure out the definition or the idea about violence in Hong Kong right now. And at first, when people divide these two groups of protest, uh, uh, they call them those who are uh, war. Uh, they call it war lei in Cantonese, means means uh, they are peaceful, rational, and nonviolent. And this group of protesters are comfortable with joining marches and also uh, joining all kind of petitions and uh, political assemblies and so on. And another group of people, uh, a protester called uh, in Cantonese Yongmo, that they are militant and fearless. And but it uh, in the past few years, a lot of debates were taking place to discuss what exactly means if you want to join the later group of protesters. And uh, it turns out that a lot of these protesters are also trying to stay on the street and disrupt the normal order of, of what's going on in Hong Kong. So it doesn't necessarily mean that they want to resort to violent tactics in terms of um, breaking glasses or, 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 or beating anyone. It's, it's more about um, a more... Um, a more proactive approach in confronting the police. At first, it's all about this um, divide. So um, 
But gradually, through July and August and September, gradually we see that a kind of figure, uh, a kind of imagery of a typical Hong Kong protester in this movement becomes someone that where um, where those kind of high, uh, uh, those kind of masks and also uh, also uh, Hamlet and in black block with an umbrella and also with all the equipments. Um, even the uh, statue of a democracy uh, goddess that uh, some artists created is based on that kind of image. I think uh, in terms of imagery, people get to more and more think that this is uh, what people should do on the street, that they should um, stay there for longer. In order to stay there for longer, they have to not just run away when the police arrives. I think that has changed uh, completely in the past past uh, few months that people are more and more receptive or and more and more uh, tolerant towards uh, people who uh, defend themselves on the street without just retreating uh, when the police arrives. I think that is exactly what what's happening when we when we make the uh, distinction between violent protesters and non-violent protesters. And also, um, when I look at some of the uh, surveys figure, we see that um, in, the, in the latest numbers, more than 32%, 30, around 33% of all the interviewees, all, all the um, people who fill up the survey, says that they um, agree with the legitimacy of escalating actions. I think um, there are always a lot of debate about what exactly means by escalating an action. And there are always a long process of negotiation between these two groups of uh, protesters. So I don't think there is very simple uh, principle operating that they always agree with each other. But uh, on top of that, uh, I think these two groups of uh, protesters are always consciously uh, countering the government's strategy of uh, labeling the violent protester as a group of protesters that are too extreme, that are not supported by the general public. That's why they develop a strategy of uh, no matter whether you agree with the other's actions, we just um, perhaps uh, see all of the protesters as whole, as a whole to be a group that works together. So there are a lot of um, negotiation, debate, and discussions after every of those actions. Samson, could you give us an uh, idea of how many people have been arrested or hospitalized as a result of uh, police oppression? So yeah, how many I people have been jailed and what kind of charges are thrown at them? Mm -hmm. um, I got the latest figures that uh, it is about 2,900 uh, people being arrested so far. But uh, a lot of them are randomly arrested on the street. So people who were charged to, uh, I mean, charges actually made uh, about 500 to 600 so far but some of the charges will be made uh, later on and then uh, i also got the figure that 
figures that are uh, among the three thousand, almost three thousand people being arrested, more than two hundred of them are university students that are already verified, and more than a hundred of them are below sixteen years old. Uh, these are more or less the numbers I got. I think most of them are not in jail yet because uh, they are on bail because uh, it's just only a few months after they are arrested. So you said that um, I think today is the 133rd day after uh, the protests yeah, yeah. began. Um, so it's a long time that there have been actions happening almost on, on a daily basis, I guess. Uh, it's, yeah. It seems to have been escalating to a point. The demands have been radicalized. Um, <clears throat> people have been arrested. Um, so how can this movement be kept up? I mean, what keeps yeah. this movement running? I think um, on the one hand, people actually have the very re reflexive Uh, idea that they need creativity to sustain the movement because new forms of action have to be reinvented, invented and reinvented every other week. I think people are rather conscious about that, and they are more ready to uh, see this as a long-term movement because uh, even in the very at the very beginning of the protests, people are citing examples from Korea, like uh, they uh, they reached their goal in 2016 after 23 weeks of protests. Now we are approaching that. We, we are in our 21st week. So um, at the very beginning, people are already ready for uh, designing actions week by week and being creative for, for the long term. But I see some very positive tendency right now that uh, apart from the actions, uh, apart from the direct protest actions, people are more and more developing into communities, uh, a big community that is um, uh, very positive in the sense that, uh, for example, there's a strong movement going on uh, asking people to just uh consume in in restaurants and shops that support the democracy movement and that has a very huge impact um they now talk about not uh shop in the chain stores and some of the big corporations because a lot of them have um clearly stated their uh political orientation that they they um pro-China or, or anti-movement. So uh, in a way, uh, that kind of solidarity uh, we see in this consum consumer's movement is very special and very uh, unimaginable in Hong Kong because for a long time, um, consumer movement is something that is extremely unsuccessful in Hong Kong. And people never thought uh, Uh, choosing where to spend their money is politically effective. But now it has grown into something very substantial. And they are now mapping and uh, having a lot of leads of restaurants that support the democratic movement in every district of Hong Kong. And 
I think that's very interesting in the in the long run that uh this how this community develop into more and more kind of uh mutually supportive um uh, mechanism like uh, a lot of people are uh helping with uh the young people's uh uh studies and academically uh since they join the protest they do not have time to study and a lot of people are supporting them uh, alongside the movement and also the uh after the uh mtr the mass transit railway in hong kong um is used by the government as a, a tool to suppress the movement people also uh, consciously explore alternative options of going to work like they are walking more uh going to uh work by bus and these kind of things are often very unimaginable in hong kong because convenience and efficiency has long have long been really uh a priority for the hong kong people for a long time so i think uh some of these very positive transformations in their lives and even in their uh urban imagination um could be something that sustain the movement in the really long run and i see that uh as very positive sign just reflecting on what you're saying i thought it was really interesting uh that you were talking in a way uh, as if the how this movement sustaining itself is almost it seems to be part of the aim of the movement is to create its own urban everyday like its own alternative urbanism in a way you know and you, and you mentioned that earlier as well i think in terms of uh routines in the city you know shopping uh places to avoid um you know moving through the city moving through space and time that kind of thing i was wondering if because uh, uh, obviously other movements have done these kind of things and tried to create their own systems apart from the state uh, in different periods of time uh are are people are activists drawing uh, uh, inspiration from from other places or other times or i mean uh, uh, how are how are these ideas developing mm. the things i described just now the the part mainly about uh choosing where to consume i don't think it's really similar to the kind of consumer movement we sometimes see in the uh in the western context so i think it it really comes very naturally that people want to um support each other is is very in in i think it's an instinct um in a way this is something uh it, this is something that is uh less optimistic that people often not read so much about social movements and activism and protests around the world so they often got uh, suddenly got very optimistic and suddenly got very pessimistic at, at moments because i don't think within the crowd and within the citizens who are in this movement i don't think a lot of them co- uh like to look at uh other protests in the past very much so uh, in a way uh a lot of the things being done are um, are very um ad hoc and improvisational so um but i see one particular action that has 
draw on uh, other example is the one uh, referencing to the uh, what happened in the Baltic uh, Baltic countries uh, in the eighties about the human chain uh, to show solidarity and and so on. I think they only reference to these kind of forms, but much less about um, strategy and ideology as such. So uh, in terms of that, I think is is uh, is something yet to be improved. Uh, that uh, how to link theory, history, and actions together. I think that is something that is uh, lacking right now. That's why we also don't see a lot of uh, uh, languages in the movement. That is uh, about that is uh, analysis or interpretation of the in a more abstract way. It's more, it's, it's actually a very practical movement that is in a way very Hong Kong, that uh, things has to be done and they have to be done in effective, efficient and smart ways, but uh, not a lot of reflection after that. I think, I think that has to do with the Hong Kong character as well. You say they have lots of the students being arrested in the protest. But uh, um, in Taiwan, we got lots of news that uh, several students have been suicide. Uh, those students who have who been suicide by government uh, raise any anger for other students or, or this kind of the thing make other students uh, be more frightened of the government? I, I think I do not know enough to comment on that. But uh... One development in the past two months have been that um, information, fake news, and rumors have been very central to this movement. I think it, it also happens in different parts of the world that uh, uh, information is a core aspect of the movement. And since, I think, since the beginning of September, more and more allegation has been made about how uh, some of the deaths of young people are suspicious, but there are no concrete proof to why uh, that happened. And then these kind of rumors accumulate. And I, I, I think I do not know enough how to comment on that, but um, it's obvious that we see uh, how to deal with these uh, information and allegations and rumors will be central to the solidarity of the movement because there are a lot of attacks internally uh, uh, when people uh, suggest that other groups are not uh, rational enough or they do not verify the facts. It becomes some kind of internal uh, conflicts that uh, has would kind of jeopardize the movement in, in the long run. So uh, I think people start to talk about how to handle information and how to deal with these rumors only quite recently. And we have yet to see what will happen soon. And I think it's, it's very interesting that Hong Kong is always understood to be a city that um, is not democratic, but in terms of information, it's rather free and open. But uh, now we see that even in a city like that, um, we still see uh, that people are, sus are suspicious of uh, the press and also 
they do not have a good mechanism to deal with these problems. So I, I can imagine that in other in other cities or in other movement, this will also be a central problem. So the movement has been able to scrap the uh, extradition bill that was the the initial uh, occasion for the movement, uh, but the demands have escalated. So what is your prediction for for how this movement and how how this conflict is is going to develop in the future? There's a whole discussion about Hong Kong turning into uh, Northern Ireland in the long run. Um, I don't know whether that will happen, but uh, I've always understand the Hong Kong problem or the Hong Kong situation to be one that about a countdown to uh, the year of 2047, when the promise uh, 50 years of unchanged and uh, one country system to be reassessed or to be uh, even some people speculate that it will be Uh, gone and Hong Kong will be just another Chinese city. I think um, now um, the world is framing the Hong Kong struggle as one against authoritarianism of China. It's uh, helpful for Hong Kong people internally as well to understand this is a this is a long term struggle. And personally, I think that uh, I have already always thought that um, it would be a long struggle until the up to two that uh, year of 2047 uh, and but now with this movement go uh, ongoing I think one milestone or one key moment will be the year of uh, 2022 because uh, it will be the next um, chief executive election and I believe that by that time if um, the whole system doesn't change a bit by the year of uh, 2022, the system still doesn't change a bit. We can, in a way, conclude that um, the current uh, Chinese regime would not make any concession to the Hong Kong political demand. And I foresee that a lot of people will believe in Hong Kong. And in recent survey, they are, they are already saying that uh, 40% of people are considering to migrate to somewhere else. And Of course, that's not very optimistic. But uh, now that people are seeing Hong Kong as the new Berlin or Berlin uh, 50 years later in a new Cold War, I think that kind of framing is also helping Hong Kong people to reflect on what this struggle is about. And I think that's a good thing. We, we turned the deadline into 2047 to now, and we have to already. We have to because there, there, there was a long time that people think that uh, we can wait until that year, or we can, we can only see Hong Kong gradually turn into just another Chinese city. But now, at least the fight, uh, forced everyone to choose the face and the future of Hong Kong, whether it will be just another Chinese city, or it will be a long struggle to allow Hong Kong to remain to be somewhere completely different from China, then I think in a way this is optimistic because uh, to put it uh, 
in a way, we are now really living in truth that uh, we we face the we face the um the forever delay Hong Kong problem, and we have to deal with it right now in our everyday struggles. I think that is um, my interpretation. Thank you, Samson, for these uh, really tremendous insights and your your reflections on this. Do you have any last comments that you would like to share or an appeal that you would like to make to people outside of Hong Kong? <laughs> um, I I want to just add one one thing about the movement that um, the role of Hong Kong as a global city uh, has driven a lot of the Hong Kong citizens to to seek uh, global solidarity and people in Hong Kong often often call this uh, the foreign fronts or the international fronts the the war that they are fighting overseas that they uh, seek other governments to uh, sanction China and to support the Hong Kong movement uh, I think very often, these tendencies have turned into the belief that um, other governments could make uh, to exert pressure on China and on the Hong Kong government. But I would love to take this chance to reflect on the fact that uh, bottom-up grassroots global solidarity is actually more important than uh the campaign to drive other governments to 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 work on the hong kong problem and i think as people who are working in the academia um this is also something to explore that in terms of knowledge exchange and also uh solidarity is could also happen uh, in these kind of exchanges, including the podcast we are doing right now. And I hope um, through that process, this is not just going to be a Hong Kong struggle. And it is really a uh, revolutionizing uh, the whole idea about social movement in the, in the 21st century as one that is truly global one through this uh, exercise as Hong Kong status as a global city. I think it could allow us to reflect on these problems and practically um, make connections. This is the final point I, I would love to make. Uh, Samson, thank you very much for those fantastic insights. Um, uh, I certainly learned a lot, I'm sure we all did, and I'm sure uh, all our listeners will as well. And uh, I suppose the last thing I want to say to you is uh, good luck and uh, we hope that uh, we can keep in touch in some way. Yeah, I hope to keep, thank you. I hope to keep in touch as well. And thanks to you for listening. For more information, visit our website urbanpolitical.podigy.io Please subscribe and follow us on Twitter.